0: Now, uh, turn with me, please, to 1 Kings chapter uh, 19. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find this reading on page uh, 361. A little bit of background before we read uh, these verses. Uh, Chapter 18 has witnessed perhaps one of the greatest confrontations uh, in the Old Testament as Elijah on one side and the idolatrous prophets of Baal on the other have uh, what is even more significant than a general election campaign uh, to discover uh, who is the true God, who is worthy of worship and obedience, who is worthy of following uh, a tremendous encounter, and of course, uh, the God of Israel, the covenant God answered by fire. Now, uh, chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them." Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors'. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat. For the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. And strengthened by that food, he traveled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into the cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountains, In the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. We'll leave a reading there for... The moment. Uh, I still have uh, very vivid memories of the incredulous look on the face of the Shah of Iran as he was exiled from his country, 1979. The golden age of the Pahlavi dynasty had dramatically and unexpectedly crumbled. All of his dreams and aspirations uh, had vanished in an instant, and as a result of that, he sunk into a deep and a terrible depression. There are, of course, different kinds and various degrees of depression. Uh, When people say, I'm depressed, uh, they're often referring to that Monday morning feeling that so many uh, of the workforce uh, do experience week after week. Uh, But Elijah's depression was quite, quite different. The expression that caused him to cry out for the termination of his life. And I want to try and explore with you this evening uh, that uh, full-blown helter-skelter depression and then look at the consequences that it produced and finally say something about the gracious uh, response of God. First of all, the, the helter skelter depression. And I want to suggest to you there are uh, three contributory factors uh, to Elijah's depression. And the first of these is exhaustion. The poor man was absolutely and totally exhausted. Three and a half years previously, he had come into the palace of Ahab and Jezebel and thrown down what was effectively the curse of the covenant which had been broken as a result of the idolatry that Jezebel had introduced to the nation. As a result of that, he held top spot in the country's most wanted list, and he had evaded all attempts of the army to capture him. And then, as we mentioned earlier, there was the great encounter on Mount Carmel. He, standing against the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, and triumphed in the consequence of that. Then there was that time of protracted prayer. As he cried out to God to, uh, to bring rain to the land. And his servant up and down the mountain, up and down the mountain. Until eventually he said, yes, uh, there is a cloud the size of a man's hand. Whereupon uh, Elijah prepared for what was almost a marathon, not quite, as he raced back uh, to the capital uh, city. Uh, a performance, uh, I'm sure, that significantly overshadowed that of any Iron Man competitor. And it left him, you see, physically, mentally, emotionally, spirit, spiritually wrung out. Uh, the poor fellow, he had gone through the mill. The burnout experience set him up for what was to be a significant reactive depression. But secondly, and in a sense, uh, steepening the slope of his helter-skelter depression was what we could describe as an unrealized expectation. You see, he believed the Mount Carmel victory to be truly spiritually defining in Israel's history. Yahweh, the God who had answered by fire, had been vindicated. And, and surely he saw the, the beginning of a national revival. Look back to chapter 18 and verse 39. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. But then, chapter 19 and verse 2 introduces a dark shadow of bewilderment, dashed expectations. Nothing seems to have changed. Jezebel has not been shorn of her power. His own execution lies only hours away there's certainly no sign of that significant revival, that spectacular spiritual movement that he craved. Well, that was a bit of a downer, was it not? But thirdly, I want to suggest that we can discern a hidden accelerant of panic, in uh, Elijah. Uh, Now, biblical narrative is never one-dimensional. As we read through Scripture, we should be asking what unseen forces are at work? behind the scenes. For example, the suffering of Job can only make sense if we have the first two chapters we're taken behind the scenes uh, and we overhear the conversation between Satan and God. Need to see that. Now... I wonder if we're able to see in these verses something of the activity of Satan, this extra dimension, the activity of Satan, the panic merchant at work here. Elijah, you'd better run for your life. Get out fast. Well... When Satan sows the seeds of panic in our thought life, irrational behavior is often the result. And you might ask, well, why was Elijah's flight irrational? Because hitherto, God had protected his prophet, it had been rock solid protection. Time and again, God had come to his aid. We see something of that pattern of deliverance in the life of David, do we not? When he was being hunted uh, by King Saul, uh, on one occasion, we read of David and his men going around one side of the mountain and Saul and his army coming around the other side. And just before they spotted one another, a messenger comes to Saul to say, you better get out of this place fast because we've been attacked by a bordering nation. What a remarkable deliverance. And David experienced that time after time after time. But then... In 1 Samuel 27 and 1, we read these remarkable words. But David thought to himself, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing, notice, the best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Where is my safety to be found? With the idolatrous Philistines, the enemy of God's people. That's where I'm going for refuge. Well, we need to ask, where did that thought come from? After all of the remarkable deliverance, where did that thought come from? Irrational fear stirred up by Satan produced David's flight. Well, the same accelerant of panic, I want to suggest, drove Elijah south as his depression begins to resolve, as it were, into satanic oppression, driven south. Well then, so much for the helter-skelter of depression? What about the consequences of his flight? Uh, Here is God's man exercising unbelief, a failure to uh, confidently trust himself uh, to God for the future. If we wanted a biblical superhero, we would need to redact Uh, all of this chapter. Uh, But the Bible doesn't do superheroes. Their failures are exposed for all to see. Uh, And it's surely with this passage in mind that James calls Elijah a man of like passion. He's saying... You know, he, he's he's just like us. He, uh, if we failed God, he failed God. None of us are perfect in our obedience, in our faith and confidence in God. And so, this spiral, spiralling depression and flight, uh, produced. Uh, a number of consequences. And again, I want to suggest there are three. and There may well be more. First, notice, he deserted the believing community. Elijah traveled, we're told, verse 3, to Beersheba on the southern border of the Promised Land. And there he abandons his servant. Then, without an exit visa he crosses over the border. Uh, Indeed, eventually, he has to travel a further 200 miles south into the desert, beyond the land of covenant, promise, and blessing. Now, it's interesting as we read through this narrative, we find that at every other point in his life, Elijah moved only in response to God's command. Elijah, go to Ahab. Elijah went. Elijah, go to the brook Cherith. Elijah went. Elijah, go to the widow Zarephath. Elijah went. Elijah, go to Carmel. Elijah went. Uh, But here, uh, for the very first time, he travels on his own initiative Abandoning, abandoning God's people who surely needed someone strong at the helm to keep them true to their decision to follow God. What about these people who who earnestly on Mount Carmel said, yes, this is the true God we want to follow and serve him. They are abandoned Secondly, uh, I want to suggest that his flight provided propaganda material to the enemy. Think of the use Jezebel could make of his desertion. Where, where is the great hero of Mount Carmel? Oh, he's done a runner. He's a big fearty. Where is he? He's gone. You know, the credibility of a servant of God is years in the making, but it can be lost in just a few hours. Where are you, Elijah? He's gone. He's gone. Now, it is just possible that... In running as he did, he has played into Jezebel's hands. What do I mean by that? Well, she sent a messenger to warn him, by this time tomorrow, you're going to be dead. Now, if she knew where to send the messenger, why not send the soldiers to arrest him at that point in time? Well, if somebody tells you, by this time tomorrow, you're going to be killed, what are you going to do? (laughs) Are you going to stand and wait for the soldiers to come? Surely you're going to do uh, a runner. More damage can be done to the work of God, not by killing his servants, but by intimidating them to abandon their confidence in God. Uh, those of you who are students of church history will have heard of a North African bishop called Athanasius. And there was a time in the history of the church when it seemed as though they were all going to be contaminated by the Arian heresy, the denial of the deity of Christ. And lots of pressure was being brought to bear on, on the leaders of the church. Uh, change uh, from your orthodox position uh, to Arius' position pressure, pressure, intimidation, intimidation and eventually they came to Athanasius and they said Athanasius uh, you've got to change too uh, because can't you see the whole world is against you now?" and he made his famous reply, well then, Athanasius is against the whole world. I refuse to fold. I refuse to be intimidated. But it's a very real pressure, is it not? And that's the kind of pressure brought to bear on Elijah. Thirdly, his depressed state was Something that so warped his thinking that we find in verse 3 that he checks into a euthanasia clinic uh, where he prayed that he might die. Now, there is a glaring inconsistency here, is there not? He ran away because he feared losing his life. And when he gets to this tree and lies down under it, he wants to die. What is going on here? Well, his thinking is all over the place, is it not? Self pity asserts itself. I've had enough. Then he makes a negative evaluation of his ministry in verse 3. I am no better than my ancestors. I'm a loser. In other words, his current unbelief is echoing the unbelief that had been expressed in the nation. He campaign from a platform of faith. But his flight had exposed his unbelief. And ashamed, he wants to hide from those who knew him at the height of his power. How many Christians feel Like that, when they've been overtaken by a a sudden temptation, failure makes them want to hide uh, and to minimize past fruitfulness. When you're swamped by depression, as Elijah was, it's very difficult to objectively assess the effectiveness of your ministry. I wonder if you've ever puzzled over how John the Baptist could with tremendous confidence point to Jesus and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then later, he sends a message from prison to Jesus asking Are you the Messiah, or should we be looking for another? How how do we explain that? I think in great measure. He was in a depressive state accentuated by his isolation and imprisonment. You see, depression can, can dull our thinking and rob us of rational thought. And that's what's happening underneath this broom tree. Well, then, thirdly, what can we say about the response of God? God responded to Elijah in his pitiful condition in three ways He provides refreshment, He provides revelation. And he provides a recommissioning service. First of all, refreshment. I wonder if you're surprised that God doesn't begin by scolding his wayward prophet. How could you exercise this unbelief? How could you be here when you should be there? Instead, he showed Elijah Remarkable compassion and tender care. God knows what his servant has been through and the the pressures brought to bear upon him. There are many who think that their failure will cause them to forfeit God's love. Never, never. For God's love is as unchangeable as himself. And God begins by ministering to Elijah's essential needs. Not by prescribing a couple of Prozac tablets, but food and rest. That's what he needed. Physical rest and nourishing food is often all we need when we are in this low, low state. Remember when we returned from Iran, after the revolution in 79, we were uh, pretty battered and dispirited and drained. We thought we were going out there for the rest of our, uh, of our lives, a uh, uh, missionary career in Iran. And it didn't work out that way. Well, our minister arranged a week's holiday at the Kreef Hydro. <laughs> that was the cure that we needed rest refreshment food and we came back uh, feeling quite quite uh, different now elijah's most basic needs came you'll notice via in angelic messengers Uh, refreshment included company Remember, he'd left his servant in Beersheba, denying himself the therapy of social interaction and support. And when we're depressed, we often seek isolation. I I don't want anybody near me. But often it's company that we need remember reading that the the language of of depression describes Jesus' condition in Gethsemane. And when the disciples proved themselves inadequate comforters, what did the Father do? Well, Luke 22 and 43 tells us, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. God ensured that the son was strengthened in the midst of that uh, day of great anguish when his soul was deeply troubled. Now, the ministering uh, to Elijah, described in verse 7 as, as the angel of the Lord is an expression often used to describe a theophany, the appearance of God in the Old Testament in visible form. Has God stepped down into the darkness of Elijah's condition? Uh, This darkness that has been compared to the valley of the shadow of death and Psalm 23, uh, something that Calvin describes as the king of terrors. Uh, Do you remember how the psalmist tells us he coped? He was sustained by the knowledge that God was with them. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. What a comfort. It is surely to know that. Uh, One of my granddaughters loves sliding down enclosed helter-skelter flumes. And on each occasion, before entering the slide, she seeks reassurance from her grandpa. You'll be there to catch me, won't you, grandpa? Well, at the end of his helter-skelter ride of depression... God was there to catch Elijah. Isn't that great? That's the kind of God that we have. It was God's kindness also that failed to answer Elijah's uh, euthanasia prayer. He mercifully refuses to take some of our prayers at face value, knowing the circumstances that shape them. Many Christians have prayed, Lord, it's enough. Release me from this life, from this responsibility, from this relationship. Now, had God answered Elijah's prayer, he'd have been denied the future blessing that was awaiting him. God is saying, as he often says to us, silly child, if I answered that prayer, you'd miss out on something far greater that I have in store for you, this brings us to the second thing that God provides, uh, which is a revelation. Elijah has now traveled to Mount Horeb, which is actually the same as Mount Sinai. Why there was his a spiritual pilgrimage into the past? An attempt to to recapture it, to, to live where the Mosaic Covenant was established. You know, the good old days. The past is valuable as a guidepost, but it's dangerous as a hitching post. Living in the past can cause us to construct mental pictures of the shape of God's work causing us to grieve if that exact shape is not now the same as what we have in the present day. In verse 9, God asks, Why are you here, Elijah? What are you doing here? Clearly, these are words of rebuke now. This isn't where you should be, Elijah. Rebuke is a necessary part of restoration. But Elijah responds with a well-rehearsed set of excuses to justify his waywardness, and he fails, you will notice, to give a direct answer. Verse 10, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your alders, and put away your prophets uh, to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me to his totally self-centered response contrasts his loyalty to God with the backsliding of the nation. Perhaps he's implying that past service and loyalty should make up for his present disobedience. Elijah is too embarrassed to suggest that a spectacular national revival was his benchmark for success. Many Christians have left their God-given posts and duties because God doesn't work as they expect, not according to uh, the shape of their expectations, doesn't compare with the past. Well, God values us too highly to permit us to, uh, to join the company of Christian Cave Dwellers Limited. He's got to get out of that cave. Now, the cave that's mentioned in verse 9 is not any old cave. The, the literal translation of the Hebrew here is the cave. Not any old cave, but the cave. And that draws attention to its significance. You may remember in Exodus 33, Moses asked God, show me your glory. And God replied, when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and you, cover you with my hand until I have passed. This cave, is surely where Moses was given that revelation of the glory of God. And it will now become the site of a fresh revelation of God. Something that Elijah desperately needed. a revelation that addresses Elijah's hidden complaint. Elijah witnesses, verse 11 following, a variety of spectacular signs. First, a strong wind uh, that did more than uproot trees. It split the mountains apart. Then a great earthquake convulsing the earth's surface. Finally, a huge sheet of consuming fire. We're told that God was not in any of these spectacular displays. Now, remember, Elijah's mindset is locked into finding God at work within the framework of spectacular activity. But it is in the still, small voice, or as the NIV has it, the whisper that God uh, reveals himself. God is saying, don't stereotype my method of working. You must not think that my presence and power can be measured only on the scale of the spectacular. Your expectations are different from my plans. There will not be a spectacular revival. I will not bludgeon loyalty from this people through continual acts of spectacular power. I'm going to work quietly in the nation. God could have said, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Elijah's initial difficulty in coming to terms with his instruction is seen in his response to the repeated question in verse 13. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he recites his earlier pitiful self-centered response. Exactly the same words as earlier. The penny hadn't dropped yet, you see. Inflexibility and rigidity of thought is not easily overcome. I wonder if we ever find ourselves thinking, if God is going to work in our church, then he'll do so only along these lines. We've sussed God out. We know how he will work. Well then, the third thing we see, despite the fact that as yet the penny hasn't dropped, is the recommissioning of Elijah. God's plan for the future, very different from Elijah's expectation, but his baffled prophet, notice, is not pensioned off as an inflexible has-been when we write ourselves off, God doesn't write us off. What an amazing thought. When we display inflexibility in our thinking, God graciously reshapes our thinking through his word. And Elijah, called out of his cave, is recommissioned, and he's given uh, three tasks Uh, Read the verses when you get home. Three tasks concerning Hazael, Jehu, and Elisha. And in each case, uh, he is at work to demonstrate that God remains in control of the historical development of his work. The shape of the work would now change. It would be advanced, not at national level, but through a believing remnant. There would be no national revival, but God had 7,000 individuals who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. And with this remnant, there was still much work for Elijah to do. The schools of the prophets were about to be reestablished equipping God's people through the still, small voice of the preached word. Elijah, you see, was standing on the threshold of a quite different work from the one he had imagined. Unrealized expectations had significantly contributed to Elijah's depression. And I'm sure there are many here who will have experienced the bewilderment of dashed expectations. It can affect us uh, on a personal level, at congregational level, regarding God's way forward for the future, We can hold very firm views about how God should work, and when that fails to happen, we can enter a downward spiral of depression. Our mindsets have become more inflexible and rigid, and that happens, let me assure you, the older we get, the more difficult it is to change. Change becomes increasingly harder to digest. And there can be a real temptation to retreat into the glory years of the past. Well, I believe this passage reveals the remarkable lengths that God will go to to call us to quit our cave-dwelling lifestyle and to give ourselves to his service, whatever shape that service. May take. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that Elijah wasn't a superhero. We do thank you that he was a man of like passions. And we thank you for all that we can learn uh, from his life. And we acknowledge that. Uh, his failures are so often replicated in our own lives. Enable us, we pray, to let God be God, to unfold your plans and your purposes uh, in your way and not in response to some predetermined idea that we have in our own minds and hearts. We thank you that you come to us in our failure to refresh and encourage us. We, We thank you that you continue to reveal yourself to us through your word. And we thank you that when we've blown it, you don't discard us but come to recommission us and by your spirit transform our lives so that we readily follow the shape and the purpose of your work in the days that lie ahead. So work in each of us we pray for Jesus' sake and for your greater glory. Amen.